verses. And part of the rationale, right, we spent the beginning of the year looking at uh, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's job is to show us Jesus. Uh, he does many things, but he's, that's one of the main purposes we, we looked at. And then when we transitioned to spiritual warfare, one of the things that kept coming up was the reality that we all struggle to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Uh, we, spiritual warfare revolves around the person and work of Jesus. And so we're going to look at the Gospel of John and, and see who Jesus is. And so let's read our passage this morning and ask God's blessing on his word. This is God's word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And this is God's word. Uh, he has spoken to us today in love. Let's, let's pray. Our Father and our God, show us Jesus this morning, uh, that we might be convinced of the truth of who he is, uh, that he is the word who made us, uh, he is the word who sustains us, he is the word who redeemed us, and he is the word who rules over us. And so as we investigate this gospel, may we, we do so with humility, may we do so with a willingness even to change our minds when we are confronted, uh, that, that we might see the good news of the gospel and be sent out as faithful witnesses of the truth. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Simon Greenleaf was the founder of Harvard's Law School in the mid-1800s. Uh, he was one of our country's brightest minds, and we're told that for, for years he was a very public agnostic, very skeptical of the Christian faith. And so when he's, right, Harvard, Harvard Law School is getting started, he loved to prod his students and, and tell me, ah, Christianity is nothing more than a silly myth. It's a fairy tale. It's a hoax believed by naive fools, by simple minds. And so as students who were Christians said, all right, professor, uh, prove it, <laughs> right? Prove it false. Put your legal expertise to work, right? And, and this is the professor who described the lawyer's profession like this, that lawyers' jobs were to explore mazes of falsehood, pierce through the falsehood's thickest veils, they compare statements of different witnesses with severity with the goal of discovering the truth and separating it from error. They, they're determining what is true. And so, Professor Greenleaf, go determine whether the Gospels are telling a true story. And that's what he did. He put Jesus and the Bible and the Gospels in the dock as the defendant, so to speak, and put Jesus on the stand and listen to the witnesses to try and discern truth from error. And so that's, what, that's the approach I want to take for our introduction this morning. Uh, we're going to come back to Simon Greenleaf at the end. Because when you start, when you read the Gospel of John, one of the main themes running through the text 
is that this is a trial narrative. Uh, that, that Jesus is on trial and everyone is asking, who are you and are you actually who you say you are? Right? And, and the gospel's writer is, is inviting us, really, to put him on trial. Uh, are you telling the truth? Right? Are you the word who became flesh, who became human, who died for our sins and rose again from the dead? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And you know, as you read this, this gospel, you can tell it's that one of the themes is a trial because of the language it's used. Right? It's, it's actually right there in, in verse 6, John the Baptist. He's a witness. He came to bear witness about the light. He came to bear witness about who Jesus is. Uh, John Baptist is the first witness. But throughout you have witnesses of Jesus' signs. You have witnesses of his teachings. Uh, there are actually seven minor characters who are witnesses that are brought to the stand, so to speak, to try and persuade you to believe. So you can think of Jesus' manipulative mother at, at the first miracle, right? Jesus is now your problem. You fix it. Um, you can think that there's a royal official who's full of faith, who testifies that Jesus healed his son. You have a paralyzed man who walks, who was paralyzed for 38 years. You have a blind man who sees better than the religious experts. Right? You have Lazarus who, who testified to what God did for him and his grieving sisters. You have Peter, the public moral failure, who testifies of God's grace. And of course, Jesus, whose mother is at the cross. And there's witnesses everywhere. You can't avoid that language. The scriptures bear witness to Jesus. God the Father bears witness to Jesus. Jesus bears witness to himself. Uh, Jesus claims to tell the truth and be the truth. And then you add language of testifying and the language of declaring judgment, Part of the idea is John is a trial drama told through story. Who, Jesus, who are you? Are you who you say you are? And so this morning what I want to do is put John, the main witness, on the stand because he is claiming to be an eyewitness to everything Jesus said and did from the beginning. He's the writer of this gospel. Uh, he is the disciple whom Jesus loved. He is the one who is writing so that all those who read this gospel may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. That's the end of the gospel. Right? So John, the witness, wants you to put your faith in Jesus. And we, we read at the end, he's... He's, he's the person who carefully crafted and, and chose these witnesses, woven together with all these stories, to show you Jesus. And we know he chose these specifically because he says at the end that there were many other signs done in front of the disciples that are not written down. And I suppose not enough books could be written to write down everything that Jesus did. Now, when you read the gospel... Part of what John is showing you is, I chose these for a particular purpose, to show you the truth of who Jesus is. Will you trust him? All right. And so, it's what we did last week. 
right? We looked at the resurrection and this, uh, the, the reality that theology became history. Jesus' resurrection is a historically verifiable event. Uh, John is claiming the same thing from a different perspective, right? He's an eyewitness. He's saying God became human. I saw it. I saw him. And so if, if he's making that claim, let's ask the question, why trust John's witness? What, what is it in the gospel, right? I know the, the, the bulletin's calling this sermon, Jesus the Word. That should be next week. I tried to plan this three weeks ago when Sally went on vacation. <laughs> Call it Jesus on trial this morning. No, why trust John's witness about Jesus? Right? It could because we live in the least Bible-minded area in the country, or at least we rotate with a couple of others. So if you try and persuade a neighbor or a friend to read, to read John or to read any gospel, they're going to have questions. Right? The objections are, go, go something like this. The Bible is just a bunch of man-made myths. They sound a lot like Professor Greenleaf. Or history was written by the winners, the church. It's just a bunch of people's interpretations, so why should I base my life on a bunch of people I don't know? Or they'll say things like, have you ever played the telephone game? Right? You know that person where one person tells a brief story or phrase and they whisper it in another person's ear and it goes right down the line. And by the time you get to the end of the line of people, uh, the story is now completely different. Right? And they argue Christianity, the Bible's like that. You know, the stories pass through lots of mouths, but it got changed over time. So now Jesus is worshipped as God when he never intended to be. Right? I mean, that's, that's Bart Ehrman, the, the famous historian's uh, that's his claim. He wrote a whole book called Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why. Right? So not a Christian. And he says, during his lifetime, Jesus didn't call himself God, didn't consider himself God, and none of his disciples had any inkling at all that he was God. You know, and so, because we're human, we all have assumptions and the assumption when a lot of our neighbors have, and maybe you, you have doubts and, and questions, is John telling the truth? What is, why should we trust him? And so, how would you answer those objections, <laughs> class? <laughs> right? Why, why trust the gospel of John? Why do you love this book? Why do, you, why do you believe this is showing you the truth of who Jesus is? Right? I mean, if you have skeptical friends, they need to see that your faith has credibility. You have reasons behind your faith. Right? This is apologetics. There are solid, historical, intellectual reasons to trust the Bible's testimony as true, even as you take it on faith. And, and for, for Christians, right, this is how you love God with your mind. It helps to to give confidence to your faith in Jesus that these things are true. So why, why trust John? Well, first, he claims to be an eyewitness. And that, that is no small thing. Right? If you're going to make something up, and, and that's the, one of the, the pushbacks against the gospel, is that ah, it's a bunch of guys who wrote this down a couple hundred years later. No, John is claiming to be an eyewitness account. And so there's a guy named Richard Bauckham, 
who wrote a book that changed how Bible, Bible scholarship has to deal with this, his claim that the Gospels are eyewitness accounts, eyewitness testimony. All, right? All of the earliest Christian documents we have are testimonies from people who were there. So you got Matthew, who's one of Jesus' disciples. You have Mark. Uh, Mark is writing down what Peter told him. Peter, who was there. Luke, his whole gospel begins, hey, I interviewed all the eyewitnesses to give you an orderly account so that you would have confidence in what you believe. Right? And when you get to John, uh, Bauckham says, you know, John claims that this is an eyewitness account because what is he claiming? John's theological claim is that the Word became flesh. The Son of God became human in real history. So the magnitude of that claim requires him to be writing history, to be telling you that something happened. Otherwise, theology would just be emptied of its meaning because our theology is God, uh, the supernatural, took on natural form, human flesh. And, right, so John is making an eyewitness claim. He's saying this is true. I was, I was there. So that's one, one reason to trust him. Well, when was this written? Right, that question matters. Because right? if you're going to make something up, you don't want it to be this book to be written hundreds of years after Jesus lived. Right? And in general, John is considered to be the last gospel written. When was that? Uh, probably about 30 years after Jesus' life and death, within the 60s, right? before the temple was destroyed. Because if you get to chapter 5, John writes in the present tense. He's like, oh, by the way, you can go to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, right now, in the present tense, by the Sheep Gate, there's a pool called Bethsaida. As in, you can actively get on your camel and go check out the Sheep Gate and this pool. And so it sounds an awful lot like John is writing in present tense and saying, you could go right now. And there's, there's multiple different pieces of realistic, eyewitness-like details that you'll find in John. I mean, these are the kind of eyewitness details you'll find that got C.S. Lewis to, to say this about the Gospels, right? And Lewis was an ancient literature mythological uh, scholar, right? And he says, I've been reading poems, romances, literature, legends, myths all my life. I know what they are like, and I know that not one of them is like this. You know, of the Gospels, there are only two options. Either this is first-person reportage from someone who was there, or else someone that we don't know in the second century without any other precedent or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern realistic storytelling. And the reader who doesn't see this simply hasn't learned to read, because <laughs> he's a professor. So he's got to be a little bit condescending. He's just saying this reads very different than some of these other legends. John is claiming to be an eyewitness. And it's likely written in the 60s. There are some who argue for even earlier than that. Uh, third, right? 
John is an eyewitness, is written in the 60s. Uh, John himself is claiming to be an early witness. So when you get down to, look in chapter 1, verse, uh, verses 35. Right, so these are Jesus, this is Jesus calling his first disciples. It says, John was standing with two of his disciples, John the Baptist, that is, and he looked at Jesus, and as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him for that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Notice the detail, right? They remember the time. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Cephas which means Peter. Right. It's a small detail, but did you notice in verse 37 who the two disciples are? We know one. It's Andrew. It's Peter's brother. There's a mysterious unnamed disciple, which is probably John. Because right. he says later in the book, they, these were witnesses of these things from the beginning. Um, but the way he describes himself in the gospel is I'm the disciple who Jesus loved. I'm the disciple who's bearing witness to these things. Right? Part of what, part of what John is saying is I was there from the beginning of his ministry. One of his first disciples, a witness to Jesus's signs as well as Jesus's resurrection. He saw Jesus love his own to the end, even to death on a cross. And so, I mean, these are just a handful of reasons why we say, okay, the Gospel of John is clearly claiming to be true and trustworthy because the author is saying, I was there. He's testifying to the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus did as, a, as testimony to the truth. So, that's one reason to trust John. Now, who, who's on trial in the Gospel of John? And, you know, when you, when you read the, the Gospel, right, Jesus is on trial. Truth is on trial. Right? Not just Jesus' claim to tell the truth, which is what he said, I, I tell you the truth. But he also says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And as Jesus stood accused in John 18, there's that famous accusation, uh, conversation between Pilate and Jesus. When Jesus says to Pilate, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And of course, Pilate famously responds, what is truth? And so in a very real, literal sense, truth is on trial when you're reading the Gospel of John. Um, is, there, is, there, is it possible for something to be true that affects every single human being who's ever lived 
That's Jesus' claim, that you might believe in him and have life in his name. Right? Truth is on trial. That's a big deal because in our culture, we've made truth personal and moldable and relative and subjective. Right? You go, oh, that's your truth. That works for you. That's great. Part of it, to be fair, right? When truth has been narrow, people have been bullies. Uh, people have made truth tyrannical. But what makes Jesus compelling is not only do you have a person who tells the truth, who's honest about God and ourselves, but he'll, he'll say things like, the truth will set you free. Uh, and the, the truth that will set you free is that that truth is a person. And that person has married uh, or is truth and love together. Right? And that the, the reality of his love will never end. So you could say uh, truth is on trial and, and the witnesses are telling you that that's John's just going to lay out his case uh, that, that Jesus is the truth. He's the one who created all reality. So he is the source of truth. But when as a human being, he doesn't lie. Uh, the, the, the testimony of the gospel is that Jesus is true and trustworthy. Why, why does he do this? Well, if you get to the end of the gospel of John and you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, it's equipping you then to be a witness to that same truth, to that same reality. Right? Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Let me pray for all those who will believe in me through the word of these Christians, through their truth-telling. And that's how the church grows, just by testifying to the truth of who Jesus is. That's why we end our service, every service, with a benediction and a charge, right? Go now as God's witnesses. What are you witnessing to? The truth of Jesus' resurrection. All right? So truth is on trial. Is Jesus the truth? Is he who he says he is? And one last twist in this courtroom drama, right? The more you read the Gospel of John, you realize it started with Jesus on trial, but all of a sudden I found myself in the defendant's chair. How am I the accused? <laughs> right? And you get hints of it right in the introduction. Because in verse 9, Describing Jesus, the true light, which gives light to everyone that was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Right. Or he'll say things like, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So if there's sin in the world, then there's something wrong. See, when you read the Gospel of John, you're going to find yourself, you're going to find Jesus telling the truth to you and about you. Right? That human beings prefer darkness to light because we find ourselves known and that, that our works are evil, that we've broken God's commandments. As, as we just read, you could have God himself standing in front of you and not recognize him and put him to death. That's what happened. 
that, that there's something wrong with human beings, that, that they need a, a lamb, a sacrificial lamb to take away the sin of the world. When, when you get to chapter 3, Nicodemus, who's, who models the best of us as humans, he's still plagued by darkness. He comes to Jesus at night. He, he still doesn't know. You can contrast that with the Samaritan woman who comes to Jesus in, in the bright noonday sun. Her, her public moral failures are not secret at, at all. And she says, you know what it's like to be human? Or, or John shows us what it's like to be human through her eyes. We long for someone to love us better than, than any human being is able. We thirst. We thirst. We're thirsting for God's presence. And so we're being shown that we're moral failures. Uh, we're, we're shown in John that, that human beings are afraid. Things happen that are outside of our control, and we wonder where God is, even if he's on the boat with us in the midst of a storm or walking by us in the storm. Uh, testifies that death haunts us, that we weep and wonder if God cares, right? Jesus, if you had been there, this would not have happened. It's John 11. Uh, that the... The witnesses will shine a light on our self-righteousness, the human tendency to heartlessly judge and look down on others. That's John chapter 9. I mean, you cannot read the Gospel of John without feeling like God is telling the truth about you. And the brutal, honest conviction is that we can't handle the truth because light has come into this world and people love the darkness rather than the light. Right. So you've, you've seen the shows, right, where the defendant's on trial, you know the defendant is not guilty, and they're, they're playing up your injustice meter. They're accused of something horrible they didn't do, while the real guilty party is sitting pretty and comfortable in the back, confident that they're going to get away with murder. Right, and, of course, then the twist comes out, and, and, and the, the accuser, becomes the accused, that's, that's the twist that happens as you read the Gospel of John. That when God raises Jesus from the dead, it turns out Jesus is telling the truth. Uh, that God was telling the truth about him, that Jesus was telling the truth about himself, and that Jesus is telling the truth about us. Right? And that the verdict that comes down is guilty. And so you need the story of the cross to be true when the Lamb of God, the innocent one, takes away our sin. So Jesus can be honest when he says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And those who believe in me stand not condemned already. And those who do not believe in me, the Son, they stand condemned. It's John 3. Well, if you if you take the gospel, if you take John's witness seriously, he's he's showing you Jesus and he's showing you your need for Jesus. So when you get to John 19 and you see the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and you, and you see the the soldiers pierce Jesus's side, and it says blood and water came out. And you hear John testify that he who saw it has borne witness; his testimony is true. He knows he is, that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. And that these things took place so that the scripture might be fulfilled. 
not one of his bones will be broken. And then again, another scripture, they will look on him that they have pierced. You know what John is saying? That Jesus' death for sinners, done in love, he's fulfilling Zechariah chapter 12. And Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 says, a day is coming when God will pour out a spirit of grace, pleas for mercy, so that when they look on this person whom they have pierced, right? So you can hear the language, Jesus was killed. They will mourn as one mourns for the loss of an only child. M meaning it's an act of grace and mercy to be shown your sin and the re realization <laughs> that I am guilty washes over you, you're gonna grieve your sin. You're gonna grieve what God needed to do to, to bring you into his family. Because on that day, says Zechariah, there will be a fountain of forgiveness that's opened up to cleanse God's people from sin and uncleanness, from sin and shame. See, but John was saying, I was there, I bear witness, this happened. And so what, what we're to do, right, because Jesus died and rose again for sinners, for us, the accused, this is John's point. What, what must you do? He's going to say over and over again, here's the work of God that you must do. Believe on the one whom he sent. I am writing these things so that you may believe and have life in his name. See, what gets you out of the dock from, the, from, from the, the guilty verdict is faith, faith in Christ, that he is who he says he is, trusting the truth. And you'll find yourself forgiven, set free. Right? And this is what makes Jesus as truth not tyrannical. <laughs> because the truth did not come to rub our, our sins and, and moral failures in our faces. He came to, well, it says, We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He comes with mercy as he tells us the truth. So do you trust him? Are you ready to be his witness? And to be his witness, you have to know who he is. You've got to know the truth about him. You've got to know the Gospels. Because the church is sent out to be witnesses of the Jesus who died for us and rose from the dead and is now building his church. So where are we here? We've We've shown, right? John is telling the truth. He's claiming to be an eye. He is an eyewitness to what happened. Right? And we can trust him because he was there and, and it happened. You know, this stuff was written down within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. Right? And the truth is that we need, we need the Savior. Now, so we, we started with Simon Greenleaf and he started his journey. This was before the internet, right? He didn't have Google to do all his hard work for him. Founder of Harvard Law School, he ended up investigating the truth claims of John and the other gospel writers. He read the scriptures, and he became persuaded that Jesus was telling the truth. He became a lifelong uh, Episcopalian Christian. And he wrote a really long essay. It's like 946 pages. You can, you can Google that if you've got time. 
But it's called this, An Examination of the Testimony of the Four Evangelists, that's the four Gospels, by the rules of evidence administered in the courts of justice. And he said, you know, I read all this. I did the work. I listened to the eyewitnesses. It is impossible that the apostles could have persisted in affirming the truths that they told had not Jesus actually, literally, historically risen from the dead. They're telling the truth. And if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this gospel that's going to show us what you are like as we see Jesus. We thank you that you are a God who does tell the truth, who does not lie. We thank you that you are a God who, who loves moral failures like us, even to death on a cross. And so I pray as we embark on this journey of, of learning from John, that you would write these truths on our hearts, that we would uh, meditate on them, and that we would be equipped to be the witnesses that you have called us to be, uh, using our words to tell the truth, being willing to confess our failures, uh, to be honest, to surprise our neighbors with our honesty, uh, to be able and willing to give a reason for the hope we have in Christ. So, Lord, I pray that this study would be fruitful and it would multiply and grow, grow the fruit of the Spirit in us and grow your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.